Shalom. I'm Mary Manzavin, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Seligson. Welcome to the Jewish Boston and Israel 360 podcast. Today, we're joined by an incredibly impressive human being, Liana Jami, who grew up in Haifa, one of Israel's most diverse and integrated cities. From the age of 12, she began volunteering at her local community center in Haifa, working tirelessly to promote the issue of shared existence between Arabs and Jews in Israel. By the time she turned 15, Leon founded her first startup initiative. Only seven years later, she continues to achieve incredible things. She did diplomatic work for the Israeli embassy in Berlin and foreign policy work for the U.S. Senate as part of a prestigious fellowship program. Most recently, Leon joined elite company, among them President Bill Clinton, author Naomi Wolf, Senator Cory Booker, uh, Rachel Maddow, and Ambassador Susan Rice when she was selected to receive a coveted Rhodes Scholarship to attend Oxford University next fall. She is, in fact, the very first Arab-Israeli to achieve the honor. She's fluent in five languages and was recently featured in the Forbes 30 Under 30 Summit in Israel for her leadership abilities. She was also honored as the featured speaker for the event. So we are honored, as you can tell, and more than a little humbled to speak to Leon today. So, Leon, welcome. Thank you. I wanted to start by asking you um, at the very beginning, Haifa, where you grew up. Um, CJP is very familiar with Haifa, as you know. Uh, it's our sister city and has been for 20 some odd, 25 years, 30 years. Yeah, I believe so. What's different about Haifa in your mind than, than other places in Israel? And what was it like as a place to grow up? Basically, Haifa to me is the multicultural city in Israel. Um, even though a lot of people are not aware, um, it only has 10% Arab uh, population and not 20 or 25 as such other um, cities in Israel. Yet I believe that in Haifa, what we have is really the concept of uh, respect more than just tolerance because um, all different cultures and all different religions are actually living in peace. Um, for the most part, I would say, in Haifa, and you're not afraid of speaking your language, you know, kind of putting out your Arab identity out out there in the society without fearing that you're going to be stereotyped or anything, or um, fearing that people might move to the other side of the street because you're an Arab and they might fear it. So I feel like Haifa definitely stands out in that aspect, and I normally also try to bring the light towards Abahushi, who was the first mayor of Haifa. Um, and he was actually one of the founders of my university, Haifa University. And he appointed his deputy, um, so his first deputy he appointed an Arab. And that was kind of like already from the beginning um, of the history of Haifa city in, in the state of Israel, it was quite clear to us that Arabs and, are, and Jews are going to be together. Um, so I feel like that is definitely very different from any other, um, any other city in, um, in Israel. You obviously stayed busy growing up, not <laughs> playing video games and hanging out at cafes. Um, what were you doing during your teen years that set you up for the Rhodes Scholarship? Wow. Um, so I think the best way to kind of answer this question is giving a bit of background on the fact that 
when I was about 11 years old, um, almost maybe a month before my 12th year um, birthday, I started uh, dealing with a chronic illness in my nerve system at that point. And I used to be a soccer player, uh, if I can call it here in America, soccer instead of football. But I used to be a soccer player. I used to dance in a jazz group as well. Um, I was a very, very active um, girl. But because of my illness, I basically had to quit all these things. Now, at that point, it was kind of like a choice whether I go and just, you know, sit in bed, sit at home, do nothing, basically, and just kind of, in a way, I would say even grieve on that person that I just lost, or I would do something else. And at that point, I must say and give all the credit, really, to my grandma. Um, so my grandma signed me up for a leadership um, kind of group at the municipality of Haifa. And at that point, it allowed me to be more open towards like civil work and really like community work. So I started volunteering and finding a lot of joy and I would say even a lot of like satisfaction out of it because at this point, I honestly felt like helping others was helping myself feeling um, a sense of worthness in my life. And I feel like at that point, that was my that's when my career as a volunteer as well as later on you know I moved into being an advocate for the concept of shared existence started at the community center um, so the community center was located in my neighborhood and I live in a very very mixed neighborhood it's about 50 50 Arabs and Jews which is a bit rare uh, unfortunately in in Haifa and in Israel so I feel at that point um, you know, being a volunteer, being being an advocate for shared existence, actually believing and being able to be active on these things um, kept pushing me to prove to myself and to my family as well as to the, to the society I was living in as well um, that anything is possible. And if you really want to be, you know, you want to see things changing in life, you have to be that um, uh, that ambassador or even, you know, the active person to lead to it because nothing will come out from me just sitting at home and just saying that I want to do this and this. It had to be like really grassroots work, I would say, at the community center that I started um, at Leobeck, which is also in Haifa. And later on, it moved on to even work at the University of Haifa with like a Jewish Arab community leadership uh, program. And all that, I believe, with the public speaking uh, career and kind of like raising more awareness to the minorities in Israel um, and that passion and I would say desire to show the world that different abilities is n is by no means there to stop anyone. Um, I feel like that definitely led to, you know, <laughs> me uh, achieving the highest, I would say, student uh, achievement, uh, which is getting the Rhodes Scholarship. Absolutely. So I was really impressed when I read the short bio about you that you started your own business at age 16. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a little bit about SockSack? Yeah, so um, there's a program actually here in America which is very similar. I believe it's um, Young Achievers, um, and the other one is... Uh, I'm not one of them, but I, I've heard about <laughs> it. I've heard about it. Sure. Yeah, so, um, so the, the one in Israel is called Young Entrepreneurs, and I entered it when I was about 14, 15, and I was actually elected as CEO, even though I did not actively run for that <laughs> job. Uh, I still was elected as CEO, and we had a lot of brainstorming. And I think what we understood very clearly from the beginning is if you want to start a startup and you want it to be successful, it, it really needs to be a necessity for other people. You have to search um, for problems that you can solve. 
And at that point, a lot of the kids were complaining about the fact that they lost their socks. They always lose it. They have orphan socks. Um, one of our team members ended up even finding a Facebook group with nine million members uh, about the orphan socks, which was crazy. So that's when we started the sock sack, which is a sack that have uh, clippers in it. And you have about 13. Uh, now, I guess that's because of the whole me loving horror. So <laughs> Friday the 13th. Um, so we have... 13 clippers in it and you can hang your socks and wash them and you, you know it's basically the end for um, the orphan socks and the missing socks and at the same time it also saves you like time and by sorting and um, and all that so that's when it started and I believe that what happened uh, it gave us a lot of understanding to the to the business world at a such a young age but it also gave us a lot of confidence to stand up and pitch our ideas and talk and um, you know sit with investors and tell them why they should believe in a 16-year-old and give them their money. Because at the end of the day, we got a lot of um, funding from business, local business owners. And that was amazing because, you know, you sit down and you say, well, I'm 16 and they're actually giving me money to put in the bank of the company uh, so we can activate, you know, we can continue on in being active uh, with the product. And I would say even the better experience that ended up, like I would say, leading to this was us winning in the regional competition and later on winning also in the national and going to the Czech Republic to represent Israel um, over there because it was kind of a, I would say, a collaboration with the young entrepreneurs in Europe. Um, so yeah, the business was amazing and definitely fired up a lot of, um, I would say, desire to continue. And right now, my fiance and I. Um, uh, Joe and, and I basically are actually working on a startup back in Israel to help um, tackle the unemployment rate of Arab women, which is nearly two-thirds of Arab women who are unemployed in Israel. So we're trying to also kind of enter the, the scene of social enterprise, I would say. Amazing. Yeah, that's I could really <laughs> use that product. Personally, I spent so much time washing <laughs> socks. I uh, wish I had brought one with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Okay. Um, what did it mean to you to receive the Rhodes Scholarship as the first Arab Israeli to have achieved that? I think it, mean, it meant a lot to me. First, it meant a lot to me as a student in general, just being able to get that affirmation that um, you, you know, you're seen as an investment, you're seen as a, uh, a future world leader and someone who can actually change the game. And I think that being an Arab Israeli, to me, that was, um, that was great f because of mainly two reasons. One is showing Arabs and Jews in Israel that Arabs have an equal uh, place and an equal role in, um, in the, you know, being a citizen of Israel. It's showing them that it's possible regardless of um, your background because I'm a first generation student and being able to arrive from, you know, a small neighborhood in Haifa to going to Oxford and getting the title of a Rhodes Scholar, that is an amazing, um, it keeps, you know, I'm constantly amazed by it. <laughs> uh, I never stop, um, I never really stop and think, oh my God, I got the Rhodes. <laughs> I think until I'm not there in the classroom with my other Rhodes fellow, uh, that's when I'm going to be like, okay, I actually made it. So, that's definitely one part. It's showing the equality and the importance of believing in yourself regardless of your circumstances and how many minority groups you belong to, I would say. And then the other one is really more towards the international arena because obviously the Rhodes Scholarship and um, as well as Oxford itself, it's very diverse, it's very um, 
you know, you have all the different um, different students from different backgrounds. So being able to show them another side of Israel uh, than the one that they're normally used to, uh, which is a Jewish um, person from Israel, now they're getting to see an Arab woman who comes from a Muslim family with a different ability. So that's that to me is great because I'm able to show them another face of Israel. Um, and I definitely experienced that when I was doing a semester abroad at Jacobs University because that was a campus that had low to none almost existent of presence, Israeli presence on campus. And a lot of them, a lot of the students were from Pakistan or um, they were from Saudi Arabia and some were from Africa and Asia. And they didn't have much of an understanding of the fact that one out of four um, citizens in Israel doesn't speak Hebrew as a mother tongue. So like understanding that me being uh, a student at Jacobs University helped kind of, um, you know, helped me engage with a lot of other students and un letting them understand what Israel is about, what is Israel in 2018. Um, I hope to get to gain the same influence also in, at Oxford and, you know, engage with people, challenge their opinions about Israel and just even expose them to another side of Israel. Um, so, yeah, that. So in, in that role, you're sort of um, you're thrown into this role as being an ambassador because you're maybe the first Israeli that a lot of people have ever met. Uh, but that can be a challenging role, too. I mean, I've been in situations where I'm the only person who is pro-Israel in a room, and that's kind of <laughs> challenging. And, you know, how do you, um, how do you embrace or take on that, that role of ambassador? And is it, is it hard, or is it something that just comes naturally? Um, I would say it definitely has its challenges, uh, because, as you know, the world is not necessarily a great place sometimes to... Um, go out and say your opinions very loudly. Um, but I think it is very rewarding and it does to some extent come very naturally uh, just because the amount of years I've spent just talking. So at this point I can, you know, you can wake me up from my sleep and be like, oh, what is this, what is that? And I can just like answer immediately. <laughs> um, but I guess a lot of things that I would uh, talk about being an ambassador, kind of a goodwill ambassador of Israel, um, would come mainly because I don't I don't see anything wrong in my Israeli identity, um, but at the same time I also don't come and say that everything is perfect in Israel. I try to explain to people in the world um, what is it that minority groups in Israel are, um, I would say, tackling uh, on a daily basis and having to deal with but also mention the efforts that, you know, um, governments or different ministries, they do, uh, and local authorities as well. So it's really about just giving a more balanced image of Israel, and I feel that definitely kind of resonates with a lot of, um, even the students that I get to meet here in Boston on campuses, because it is coming from a very authentic place of not shouting, hey, I'm like pro-Israel or I'm uh, pro-Palestinian. It's not It's not coming from that point of view. It's really um, kind of generally coming from a point of view that I'm here to tell you about my life. How was it for me growing up as an Arab in Israel um, when people think that this and this and this? So I just come to give them a more of a balanced. And that's why I feel like it's uh, definitely more natural because it's, it's basically my life I'm talking about, so yeah. You've stated repeatedly your opposition to BDS, um, Boycott, Divest, Sanctions movement. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think is harmful about that movement? So yeah, um, I would say that definitely my opinion has been over the years um, very, very much opposing academic boycott 
I believe that um, diversity in higher education should definitely be taken as an intellectual asset and not as something uh, that we should limit. I believe that if you go to the university, if you enter with a certain uh, certain opinions and you leave university after regardless two, three, four years and you're still holding the same opinions, then you must have done something wrong there because university is there, is there to challenge your thoughts. It's there to really allow you to be exposed to so many different opinions. So at that point, I feel that boycotting academic uh, institution in Israel will not help at all. And it definitely also, again, uh, just to mention Jacobs University, that was an amazing experience for me in um, you know, having this unmediated conversations with people from Pakistan and people from Palestine and Saudi Arabia and allow them to hear my story and understand the Arab population in Israel. So that would have not happened if Jacobs University have decided to boycott Um, Israeli academic institutions. So I feel like it is very important for universities to never ever even um, limit, you know, the the freedom of knowledge and actually be that safe place for unmediated discussions, academic discussions, academic debates in which everyone um, can, you know, express their opinions with their arguments and uh, whatever it is that they want in order to support their arguments as well and have respect between the students. So I would necessarily say that I'm definitely opposing academic boycotting. Now, when it comes to different boycotts, um, I'm quite, I would say, ambivalent about it just because on the one hand, I understand the concept of it. I understand it is a lot of, um, it is a form of a non nonviolent resistance and I'm not against that a lot of people do it in different countries and uh, not necessarily because of political um, issues even economic issues such as in the UK but I feel if the reason is really coming from a point that I want to help the people in Israel and I want to help the Arabs I want to help the Palestinians a lot of what ends up happening with BDS is it actually harms them and that's where I feel um, people are kind of missing the concept that we are all under the same umbrella in Israel, uh, regardless who we are. And, you know, I would say the strongest image or analogy that I can put in would be the missiles uh, from Hezbollah in 2006 in the Second Lebanese War. They fell, ironically, on a lot of Arab villages and killed Arabs uh, citizens, even though Hezbollah and Nasrallah was saying constantly, oh, yeah, we want to help our Muslim brothers. And that's where I feel like, you know, we are under the same umbrella. That missile cannot target, like doesn't know how to target between a Jewish home and an Arab home. And same thing with the BDS actions. I feel like they cannot be so specific. Um, And even though it is a form of a nonviolent resistance, I feel like, the word should be, and maybe it's just because that's the way I carry my myself in the world, is being optimistic and being positive instead of negative. Um, so, yeah. What kind of opportunities and challenges do Israeli Arabs face now? Um, how did that impact your upbringing? I would say that I'm definitely fortunate to be growing up in Haifa, which is a, almost a Jewish city, I would say, because it's 90% almost Jewish. So that meant I have the best transportation, best hospitals, um, uh, which I can definitely testify because I mostly spend my teenage years there. Um, and as well as, you know, um, universities and, and infrastructure as, as well. So having that, my upbringing was easy. Uh, in Israel as an Arab Israeli. 
Yeah, in my high school years, I got to be exposed a lot to the um, Arab villages and Arab cities because in my high school, we had about maybe 60 or 70 percent uh, who came from the neighboring Arab villages. And when I started going to visit my friends there, you could you can kind of feel why they feel neglected. You can understand that because, you know, infrastructure is not good. They don't even have one traffic light um, in their villages. Um, not to go even that far, there's Isafia, uh, which is an Arab village about 10 minutes from Haifa University. My aunt once told me that, oh, yeah, I'm going to take a shower tonight and not tomorrow because I'm not sure I'm going to have water tomorrow. And I was just like, why? And she was explaining the whole water concept. And I was like, but you're a taxpayer just like we are. So how come you have to deal with these issues? And it's not like it's, you know, it's like a 10 minute. Uh, drive from Haifa University but you feel like you went in a time machine like 10 years or 20 years backwards so I feel like that is definitely um, one of the challenges is uh, the infrastructure and um, even the attention and the neglection from the government when it comes to the citizen and the civic life so I feel there's there's that obviously and then there's the education concept I you know I grew up and I'm the first generation student and my father definitely uh, believed that there should not be rich education for rich people and poor education for poor people. There should be rich education for everyone. So from that concept, we went to public school from a very young age. But when it came to high school and because my dad really wanted to make sure that we end up going to the university, um, he had to make the judgment and actually send us to a private high school. Uh, because he wanted to make sure that we have the right toolbox uh, to go and excel at the university. And at that point, that's when I realized how, how much of a failure in the education system we have in the, Arab, in the Arab sector, because just in Haifa itself, we have one public school that is um, Arab-speaking, and you have nine private schools that are Arab-speaking. So there's definitely demand, but not much of a supply from the government. Whereas in the Hebrew-speaking schools in Haifa, you have one that is completely private, one semi-private, and then you have 14 that are um, public schools. So coming from that point, you you know, if you really want to make sure that your son and or daughter ends up at university and excels, you have to give them uh, you, you want to as well as a parent to make it as much um, as easier I would say for them uh, so that's when my dad decided to put us in a private school so I feel like education system and that's even just in Haifa so I can't even imagine you know most of my um, most of my friends who come from the Arab villages they're coming from families that their fathers are doctors and nurses and and all that so they have the money to pay um, for their transportation on a daily basis to Haifa and back home. Uh, whereas what happens to the other population who doesn't um, have the money and the resources for it. So I feel like education and resources, those are the main um, main things, as well as opportunities in the workforce as well and kind of bringing them more to the table. We talked about being you know, an ambassador. So I feel one of the things when I started learning political science and international relations, it came um, because I majored uh, electronics and physics when I was in high school, so it was a completely different. But it came from that concept of wanting to be the voice for Arabs abroad as well. You know, if you look at an ambassador in some sort of a country, let's say Spain, um, and someone from Spain wants to do some work with Israel, 
the ambassador would be likely to connect them to um, you know business um, men and women in the center area near Tel Aviv and not necessarily in Nazareth or other places because they're not it's not because they don't want to or they're discriminating but it's just coming from a point that they they're just not aware they're not exposed to there and let's say they might that might not be on the on the top of their agenda whereas in an Arab ambassador, they would come with that resource of knowing the businessman and woman in the industry, knowing how to connect them, knowing how to make Arabs feel a bit more of a sense of a belongingness uh, in Israel. Um, so I feel like that also should be kind of uh, pushed more from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So tonight you are um, you're speaking at Northeastern. Yes. And Northeastern is a campus where um, there are a lot of, let's say, different opinions about Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> along with many other universities. Uh, in your work as, a, as an unofficial cultural ambassador um, <laughs> of Israel, what would you say is the most ridiculous question you've been asked or the most ridiculous assertion that you've been presented with about the country that you grew up in? I would say uh, driving on two separate roads. <laughs> oh, that, that's a popular one, actually. <laughs> For me, it was completely, um, it kind of caught me off guard because I was just like, what? <laughs> Um, that that would definitely something that was very strange for me um, and I would say it's not much of a like a something that caught me off of guard but I don't uh, I don't get it as much so it's a bit more rare and that is why didn't I serve in the ID, uh, IDF why don't I want to as well uh, so that was quite interesting as well for me I just got it even two nights ago um, at Harvard University when I was giving a speech there so I was just sitting there and trying to you know, understand how to best approach this question and how to explain my opinion. Because um, whether it is from both the government uh, not necessarily incentivizing you to go and serve at the IDF because um, you have a lot of, I would say, uh, the questioning part, let's just say, in the air- at the airport, the part that I get, it's, it's a piece of cake to what you would get if you decide to go to the IDF because they would question, and um, I can understand why, they would question why do you want to come and serve. So there is that, and then from the other part, there is definitely um, the Arab society who wouldn't necessarily very, uh, be very welcoming um, to you if the, you decide to take that step. And let us not forget, for example, for me, I have family in Ramallah, I have family in Lebanon, I have family in Syria and Jordan, and so it shouldn't be expected for me to be joining someone, um, an, an institute, I would say, that is fighting against those countries, because at the end of the day, th- these are my families, and it is the same for all the other Arab um, Arab society in Israel. So I was just like, I always kind of, I wonder a bit when them ask that question, because I feel like it should be, you know, kind of taking for granted. Um, so yeah. Yeah. So I have sort of the inverse of that yes. question. Um, What's the most ridiculous or surprising thing an Israeli has asked about America? Mm. Uh, <laughs> well, I would say maybe, okay. Um, so I lived in, in Washington, D.C. for nearly um, more than half a year. And I came back to Israel in the middle. And then obviously with all the tours that are coming in and out from Boston, I always get the question, is it as big as it seems in, on TV uh, and even like portions and all that? I must say it was completely um, unintended to like offend anyone at that point. But 
I did. There was a moment where I was in the cinemas and I asked for a small um, <laughs> a Coke Zero, and the guy, you know, handed it to me, and it was even larger than the large in Israel. So I was just about. I was like, oh, this is America. <laughs> so um, I would say it's definitely about how big things are uh, over here, and New York Times uh, Times Square. Uh, even my sister, when she came to visit me here, um, she was just so overwhelmed by it. She just stood there and she was like, oh my God, it's amazing. It's just like on TV. So it's really about understanding that it is reality and not just TV for us because that's how, you know, we grew up with all these American TV shows and suddenly you see it in reality and you just can't even believe that this exists. So it would be that. So know. to any Israelis listening, if you get a gigantic cup, <laughs> It's probably an extra small. It's all water. Yeah. That's the American way. It's a trick. Yeah. Uh, So getting to a slightly more serious subject. Sure. uh, There, from what I've seen, and and I'm just one person looking at the world, Mm -hmm. there seems to be some pressure on both the Arab and Israeli side to resist the idea of normalization. Mm. That um, the, the idea that there's the other mm-hmm. and that you know you said that Haifa is rare and that it has a neighborhood that is completely integrated I know in Jerusalem neighborhoods are not at all integrated I think it's the same in Tel Aviv how do you think um, Arab and Israelis can overcome this idea of the other because that seems to me to be the first step in creating a, a two-state solution or some something better than what we currently have yeah, absolutely. So that's definitely going to the serious, <laughs> serious side. <laughs> Way to I be wanted Dan. to finish on a low note. So. Um, well, okay. So it depends uh, if we're talking about Arabs and Jews in Israel or Arabs and Israelis in general, um, as in like Arab countries neighboring. I would say that to me, understanding normalization, um, it is definitely the the example of Enayam Wadijmal neighborhood, which I grew up and my parents still live there, um, which, you know, you just, if the neighbors are fighting, it's not because they're Arabs and Jews, it's because someone dropped something in the staircase or something. So the it's just like... The dog barking too much. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that is what I love seeing is that kind of integration that we have. So I would say... Um, what we can do is first eliminate the, the concept of other and kind of embrace more a concept of us. Uh, because again, we're all in the same region. We're all under the same um, kind of umbrella uh, to kind of, you know, uh, use that analogy again. So it's, it's kind of bringing that more to awareness and understanding that if we don't work together, then there's not much of a future ahead of us. So we have to kind of combine hands and and work towards a better future. Um, As for, you know, a two-state solution or not, or getting a better better result from what we're having today, I would definitely urge people to to normalize their relationship with Israel. Uh, And for Israel to even seek more of, you know, peace treaties, uh, such as the ones that um, it has with Jordan and Egypt. And we kind of see it when it comes to counterterrorism. Israel is seen, you know, Saudi Arabia is even kind of uh, reaching out to Israel, which is very, very interesting to see. So I feel like when you have a a common enemy, suddenly your uh, enemies nearby seem a bit more friendly to you. Um, So even though it is on a sad circumstances, I'm still happy that this is happening because that would allow them to understand that the other is not as bad. 
um, and I would say it would it all really as cliche as it sounds um, it all really depends on the younger generation uh, one of the things that I did during my uh, studies at the University of Haifa was um, you know through the Jewish Arab Community Leadership Program was to build a program to teach Arabic and Hebrew to young children from the ages of four to seven. And that ended up even, uh, the final stage was actually um, a bilingual cultural and uh, theater production uh, for kids. And that was actually the first bilingual theater production in Haifa. What it came, uh, I would say the idea for it came from my upbringing at my neighborhood. My first friend was Rita. She was a Jew uh, from a Russian background. I met her when I was about five. I didn't know nothing about Jews or, you know, the other. And as I grew older and as I was exposed to different opinions, I'd be like, wait a second, but, you know, Rita is like that, but she's, you know, she's Jewish, but she's nothing like what you're saying uh, she is. And that's when I understood that generalization was kind of the worst enemy of humanity because it's stopping you from approaching the other person. So I would definitely urge more of, like, collaborations between both Palestinians and Israelis and Arabs and Jews inside of Israel to get to know each other from a young age and you made a great point Dan because in um, you know in Haifa in my neighborhood it's such a rare occasion but it is it should be really kind of copied and pasted all over Israel in the Middle East if I'll be honest because once you start living with the other once you start um, meeting the other on a daily basis it's no longer it no longer becomes the other, it becomes a part of you and your identity and the community identity. So seeing how Arab villages and Jewish um, cities, they're like only a street, there's only one street that is dividing them, and yet they don't visit each other on a daily basis. That's sad. Uh, that To me, that is very sad, knowing that uh, even like community activities and all that, they're not combined together, that should also be kind of tackled. Uh, and addressed by both the Ministry of Education, by local authorities, kind of the leadership of the local authorities, combining together, figuring out how to get people together. I would say that the best way is really either music or foods, because <laughs> that always works. Um, but yeah, uh, that would be my, I would say my suggestion. Well, I think you're really, you're living this, like you're really, <laughs> you're doing this. And I think it's amazing. And I just wanted, you know, to to say congratulations on Thank the you. on the scholarship and you, you know much. to kind of living the what you're talking about you're doing it, you're <laughs> Get this Rhodes Scholarship and change the world. So thank you. <laughs> I have very high yeah, hopes. I'm, for I'm, I'm like. <laughs> Yes, thank you so much for being here. You're so inspirational. Thank you. And it was just amazing to speak with you today. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, and thank you for hosting me. And um, I loved the, I would say, even the diversity of the questions. Uh, it was it was great. And, um, yeah, I'm just hoping that anyone who's listening would just, uh, you know, jump on any opportunity that they would get to come and visit Israel and uh, see how beautiful and diverse it is. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thanks.